Hi, this is Scott Porch, and you are listening to the Porchland Podcast. Today's show is part one of my two-part interview with Linda Obst, who produced the romantic comedies Sleepless in Seattle and How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. She has a new book out called Sleepless in Hollywood. In part one of the interview, we talk about the collapse of the DVD business and the increasing influence of the international box office on how decisions are made in Hollywood. But first, we break some news about her upcoming sequel of sorts to How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Come back in a few days for part two of the interview when we talk about why some movies have gotten so much more expensive and some less. We also talk about Christopher Nolan's follow-up to The Dark Knight Rises, the recently announced sci-fi epic Interstellar, which Linda Opst will produce with Christopher Nolan and Jonah Nolan. Thanks for listening. You have several film and TV projects in progress right now. What are you working on today? Uh, today I worked on How to Get Over a Guy in 10 Days, the um, effort to make a franchise out of uh, a romantic, romantic comedy, kind of a um, uh, almost impossible task. So how's that going to work? Is that going to be new characters but a same format? Yes, in a way. Uh, the, char- the writers who wrote the original six-figure book that How to Lose a Guy was based on wrote a series of books that are sort of how-to books, comedic how-to books, and um, some people bought the rights to another book of theirs, um, brought it to me, and we developed a brand-new script with Kiwi Smith and um, uh, two wonderful other writers, and uh, so they're brand-new characters, and we made a new romantic comedy, sort of more for this era. You, you talk some in the book about, I think the term you use is pre-awareness about movies that come with their own uh, sort of conceptions and, and, and a place in the market before people even know what the movie is about. Is that, did, did this movie have something to do with that sort of philosophy? Yes, exactly. We're trying to take sort of the notion of pre-awareness, the pre-awareness of how to lose a guy, take its fans and say this is something like that. It's not exactly that. It's not a sequel. It's not what happens to Andy and Ben, Matthew and Kate. After they get together, it's not their divorce. They're breaking up. They're having kids. But it's a movie in that vein. Uh, It's not a reboot. It's not a sequel. But it's a movie in that tradition. It's very difficult to do uh, franchises based on romantic comedies because they're not sequelizable. So this is an experiment, and as a result, it's an indie. You have kind of a person in the industry for each one of those sections. Did, did, did you set out to do it that way on purpose, or did you sort of back into it as you, as you were researching? Well, what happened is I sort of set off to figure out what the hell was going on because I couldn't figure it out myself. I didn't understand why I wasn't able to get the same kinds of movies made and that I was able to get the first half of my career. So like Alice in Wonderland, I went on a journey to figure out what the hell was going on. And I went to a series of people um, that I knew best, the smartest people in the industry who I'd known throughout my career, and I was lucky enough to work with some of the smartest people in the business. And uh, as I went to them, I figured out pieces of the puzzle. And it took me a long time to figure out the puzzle. And, of course, as I figured it out, 
things changed. It was like Heraclitus's river. Every time I figured something out, it changed, and then it changed again. And so I had to assemble a whole lot of information before the puzzle made sense to me, and then I put it in sequence as I figured out the puzzle. Sorry, was there a particular one of those areas that, that surprised you or turned out differently than what your sort of preconceptions were? There were two big pieces of the puzzle. First, there was Peter Chernin's piece. Um, I knew that the DVD collapse was a big thing, but I didn't know that it was the essence of it all. I didn't realize that those little silver discs went to the heart of the profit engine of the business that allowed me to make all the one-offs, the interstitial movies or the interstitial one-offs originals that came between the tent poles that used to just be at Christmas and Easter at summer when the kids are out of school. I didn't know that that was what allowed those movies to get made. And when he explained to me that the business ran at only a 10% profit margin during those golden years and that when the deep technology collapsed the DVD business, it was suddenly running at between a 4 and 6 profit margin and all those profits disappeared and the studios froze. They couldn't do a P&L statement any longer. I was stunned. And then what he explained to me was that the only source of profit coming in, the only reliable source of profit, when they couldn't do a P&L, turned out to be the emerging markets. So then I went to Jin Giannopoulos, who had been the head of international at Fox when I was working there, and Peter was the chairman. And he had been a guru of mine who was um, kind enough to open Hope Floats in territories it would never open <laughs> because it had a cowboy hat. And... Um, Jim was uh, now head of Fox because International was so important and Peter had left. And Jim explained to me that when I first came into the business, International was 20% and domestic, UK, United, the North American market, was 80%. And now, 10 years later, International was 80%. It was fully reversed. And the domestic market was 20%. That we were only 5% of the world, of the movie going of the world, and that that was a fact, and that's where the profits were now coming from. Well, I was going to say, and, and that affects which movies are actually getting made, which is something you write about. It determines which movies get made. If that's where the profits are coming from, and they want a certain kind of movie, and they want certain actors, that's what's going to get made. Well, and I think the single thing in the book that surprised me probably more than anything else is that American comedy doesn't play well in some international markets. Can, can you explain why you think that is or if we really know why that is? Well, of course, because there are cultural nuances that don't travel. Um, broad comedies play to a certain extent because, as Jim explained to me, um, falling on a banana peel is funny in every culture. But nuance, cultural nuance, our wit, our, particular, our peculiarities, they don't travel. So so-called writing, wit and nuance, doesn't travel, which, of course, was very bad for writers. But um, broad comedy travels, which is why you saw Hangover play, which is why you saw uh, Horrible Bosses play to a certain extent, and why you saw Bridesmaids surprise everybody and play so well. But um, our more nuanced comedies, the one that the sophisticated older audiences like, are too domestically oriented. They, are, they require too much looping. They require too much 
um, they require too much looping, you know. These movies are typically shown in foreign markets dubbed rather than with subtitles, which is the way we see most foreign movies here. Exactly. And not only that, think of this. In China, which is now the second biggest market in the world, and by 2020 it will be the first, they let a very limited number of movies in, only 21 from around the world. Recently the quota was lifted by 14 movies, and only IMAX and 3D movies are among those 14. So if they're picking and choosing what their audience is going to see, why would they want them to see, you know, sophisticated American movies? Or why would that be what the audience wants to see? They want to make their own movies like that with their own cultural nuances. They and from a, from a studio standpoint, if you're Warner Brothers and you only get to send five movies to China, they're going to be the big ones. Exactly. Those are the ones that are going to generate the biggest profits. So they want to send the ones with the biggest chances. As it is, they limit the dates of their releases. They limit the amount of time they can play in the theaters. They limit the profits to 17%. So they want to get their biggest blockbusters out there, and that's what those people want to see. They want to see what can only be made in America, the spectacular, amazing technology that our filmmakers have access to that isn't yet available or affordable in the rest of the world. That's what wows them. And, and countries and why? understand why. Yeah. In, in, in countries like, you know, France or Italy or, or India or South Korea that have sort of established um, their own domestic film markets, why have American films been able to make such inroads? I mean, they're, they're, they're displacing, you know, domestic films that were already there to, to, to a large degree. How, how are American films doing that? Well, they're doing this with, our, with technology. They're doing this with the extraordinary um, awareness that our films have with our ability to market through sequels and blockbusters and these huge movies. Only these movies can compete with their indigenous films. And don't mistake it, they're in, their film markets are in direct competition with our films. Chinese, China made two of their own indigenous billion-dollar movies this year. That's what they want. They want hegemony in their own markets, as does France, as does India which is why Fox has a department to try to co-finance indigenous films in those markets. So the only ones of our movies that can compete are the ones with, these, with this enormous pre-awareness, the ones with effects that are so expensive that no other countries can afford to make them. And the new Iron Man movie is actually a co-production with China, right? The new Transformers movie. The new Transformers movie, okay. And so how is that different than... than it co-stars Li Bingbing. It'll be a genuinely, who's the biggest female star in China. It'll be a genuine co-production, which means that uh, China will participate in the material, and the development of the material of the Chinese characters. It'll be um, subject to Chinese regulations from the outset in development. But at the same time, it won't be subject to the restrictions in terms of quotas, it's not necessarily even in terms of profits, I'm not sure. And it certainly won't be restricted to the black, subject to the blackout dates that two of our biggest blockbusters, The Dark Knight and Spider-Man, were last year, where they went um, head-to-head against each other or were cut out of the most important summer dates. And I, I 
mean, have any of the studios tried, I mean, where you would make a movie like this and where, you know, the version you show in China, the, you know, the character would be played by Lee Bing Bing, but in Brazil it would be played by a Brazilian? I mean, are, are, are these movies customized at all for the markets that they're shown in? Well, there are three answers to that. For a very long time, um, movies have been looped by different actors in different countries. So the stars of Norway uh, in Shrek and in animated films um, are played by Norwegian actors in Germany and by German actors, looped by German actors. So they've been very smart in terms of animated movies by looping them by their local stars. In terms of production, that's too expensive to do different versions, customized. Um, the new global market will just have international stars. There have always been global stars like Jodie Foster, Mila Jovovich, uh, stars who are just big international stars either because of their ethnicity or because of the commercials they do. And they, Sandy speaks German, Jody speaks French, Mila is Russian. And now they're going to be, star, uh, you know, the Australian stars, the English stars. They, they're always big in their own markets, you know. And they're right. going to be new global stars. Um, there are stars who have tremendous pre-awareness because their films were big hits in the past, and therefore they're already pre-established in foreign markets. Um, and then what was the third? You said the, the, the looping and then the international. Looping. Um, there are international stars because they both work those markets and are indigenous to those markets. And, of course, in the past there were people like Jackie Chen, you know, who are always in action, martial arts stars who are in action films. But there will never be this sort of customized production because it's too expensive. Um, back a little bit. Agents, the American agents, wouldn't let that happen because the goal of being in a film is to begin to establish yourself as an international star. Right, so that your name is recognizable in China so that you can... And that you gain value. And I had I did some research and had some difficulty finding consistent numbers on DVD sales, but one thing I read from the Digital Entertainment Group, which is a trade association, said the total home entertainment sales peaked around 2007 and then fell off, but that DVD, the DVD part fell way off, and some of that was replaced by, you know, uh, Netflix and, and other streaming, but that the DVD part fell from about $20 billion in 2007 to about $16 billion last year. I don't know what portion of that would have been to the studio's revenue, but somewhere somewhere north of $4 billion a year just disappeared from the market. Did you read Peter Chernin's excerpt in the book? I did. I mean, you know, he scolded those years. Do you know? I'm sorry, he said what? He literally scolded those years. The look on his face was morbid. You know, 2007, 2008, 2009. By 2009, it was gone. And that's when I stopped being able to get my movies made. Well, and our... Are, are DVDs more profitable than something like video on demand for the studio? There are fractions of what... Um, Michael Linton talked about it in his interview with me, and he got very technical. I wasn't able to include all of it because his interview was so brilliant. It could have been the entire book. But basically what he talked about is each of those new markets is like a penny that will all accumulate to maybe a third of what the DVD market was. 
And over time, there will be more. And maybe it'll accumulate, you know, maybe it's a quarter now and it'll accumulate to a third. You also talked in the what the DVD market was. But it's, it's revenue. Yeah, you talk in the book about the, the shift in where the Hollywood studios are actually making their money, which I found kind of jarring. You've got a graphic or a little yeah. numbers chart in the book where the, the five biggest studios yeah. profited in the most recent year about $2.5 billion from the movie business, but $22 billion from the television business. How is that even possible? Because television is where the money is. And television is where the money is is because of there are many revenue streams. There's syndication. There's advertising. There's pay television. There's just many revenue streams. And does that $2.5 billion for the movie business include the, the revenue from the movies when they do go into the TV revenue stream? What this book is trying to explain is that even in the glory days, when people were driving around in Jaguars, okay, and smoking big cigars, the movie business operated on a 10% profit margin. Okay? And the, te and the television business was more than that? It, that doesn't mean individuals didn't get rich. Right. It meant the studio profit margin was very small. And that's because the hard costs of marketing are so high. And it's the costs of production are high. And that's because it's a general rule of thumb that you're going to spend the same amount of money promoting a film as you did producing it? Yes, and that's because many movies fail as succeed. And the ones that succeed cost the same amount in marketing, and the ones that fail cost the amount of money in marketing. So you have a double loss on your failures. Yeah. It's far, and with your approach to writing the book, I, I thought, I mean, with the exception of the... mind-boggling to me as well, and I've been in the business for 30 years. <laughs> well, and, the, and the, the television, and and you sort of moved toward television, which I want to get to, but... Television, people made more money. There is this famous line that was, you, if you make it in movies, you get a great table at Morton's, and if you make it in the television business, you get a house in Malibu. <laughs> Well, and you talked in the book about once upon a time at the Golden Globes, the, the TV people yeah. and the movie people, you know, you know, the, the, the TV people sat in the nosebleeds and the, the, the movie people had the great tables near the front, and that now it's not so much that way. Not even not so much. It's completely blended. The TV people are downstairs. The movie people are upstairs. It's all one big mush pot. There is no <laughs> difference anymore. As far as how you approach the book, I – it read more like reporting than what I was expected when I picked it up. Um, you know, read more like journalism than like a memoir. Did you consider just, I mean, you've got a newspaper background. You were an editor at New York Times at one point. Did, did you just consider just doing it as a straight book of reporting? I can't do reporting, straight reporting, because I still work here. So I could not go to sources that I didn't know. I couldn't pick up the phone and call a studio head I hadn't worked with. I couldn't call people blind because that could advantage me or disadvantage, do you know? Right, because you you're going to see these people again and you still work in the business. 
and not to see them again. I may have a project with them. They may think, oh, she's trying to get an advantage with me by interviewing me, you know. Um, I can't be a reporter. I knew from the beginning of time when I came here that I could never function as a straight reporter. So I have to work as who I am here. I have to write as who I am here, which is a participant in the business. Therefore, the only people I could talk to were the ones I had grown to know intimately well. The Sherry Lansings, the Donald Alines, the Jim Giannopoulos, who I worked with for eight years, Peter Chernin, whom I've known through high school, who was my boss, who I had lunch with almost every month through my eight years at Fox, all of my bosses at Paramount, Michael Linton, whom I'm working with now, you know, I had to talk to people who I know and who can talk intimately with me. So these are the kinds of conversations that these guys wouldn't have with a reporter because with a reporter they'd be more guarded. And so that's the advantage of the book in that it's repertorial but not reported. They're very unguarded, they're very honest, and they're very, very generous. One of my interviewees is my brother, you know, who runs WME Television as a partner. And I think even with that section of the book, you you did a good job. You did a good job of functioning as a reporter. I mean, you got them to talk about things. Trained reporter. Do you know? What's that? Because I'm a, I am a trained reporter. Right. I began my life. So when I came out here and started writing, I tried to be extremely ethical in how I could write, but at the same time still use my skills as a reporter to get the story. So I used my skills to get the story because I was both figuring out for myself intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, and figuring it out for the town and for my son and for my intern because it was a genuine puzzle. Like, what on earth is going on here? Is it going to change? Is it systemic? Is it permanent? So I used my journalistic skills without really being a reporter, and I can never be a reporter unless I quit. That was part one of my interview with Hollywood producer Linda Obst. Please check back soon for part two of the interview when we will talk more about her new book, Sleepless in Hollywood, and about Christopher Nolan's follow-up to The Dark Knight Rises, the recently announced sci-fi epic Interstellar, which Obst will produce with Christopher Nolan and Jonah Nolan. This is the Porchland Podcast.